0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Gatton College of Pharmacy. Today is April, April? No, gosh, it's August 15th, 2019, uh, and thanks to the College of Pharmacy for supporting this podcast. Uh, today we're going to talk about, um, you know, maybe an, an instant classic or an instant landmark, but this is a big study published August 1st in the New England Journal of Medicine of this year. Uh, it ibrutinib or chemoimmunotherapy and chronic lymphocytic leukemia now you might be asking john you usually talk about stuff pretty pretty early after it's published why the two-week uh wait what was this embargoed uh no i had an app student who was uh doing this for journal club and uh, i didn't want this student to listen to the podcast before doing the journal club so now that the journal club's been done we can talk about it uh for for the listeners to hear So this is the E-1912. E stands for uh, Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. That's who conducted the study. So E-1912 is the name of this study. Uh, You might remember it as the Titanic study because the Titanic sank in 1912, Uh, but you probably won't. That's probably just me. So a couple things before we get into this. So this is CLL. This is the most common hematologic malignancy. About 20,000 cases a year in the U.S. of CLL. That's more than twice the number of cases of CML per year, which is about 9,000 cases per year. It's an indolent disease, slow-growing, not considered curable uh, by most folks. There are um, a, a couple important prognostic factors to point out. Uh, One is deletion of 17p. This chromosomal abnormality is associated with the worst prognosis with CLL. And that makes sense because that's where TP53 is on the 17p chromosome. And TP53 houses um, the tumor suppressor P53. So if you don't have that tumor suppressor Uh, gene or you have a mutation of TP53 uh, that's deleterious, those patients do a lot poorer. Those patients were excluded from this study because uh, ibrutinib by itself has been established as uh, the best treatment for those patients. Um, And this was looking at ibrutinib rituximab compared to the old standard of care uh, FCR. Another significant uh, prognostic factor is uh, unmutated IGHV, which is immune globulin heavy chain variability. So patients that are unmutated uh, also have a slightly poorer prognosis compared to mutated IgHV. Uh, And patients were stratified based on IgHV mutational status in this. Um, So prior to this study, the way the the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN guidelines, uh, would have uh, recommended treatment would have been based on... uh, frail versus fit patients. If you were frail, um, either because you had comorbidities or because of age, you would have been, uh, you know, the category one recommendation would have been a Brutinib. If you were young without comorbidities, it would have been FCR, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. So this study was looking at a Brutinib-Rituximab as a a two-drug regimen compared to FCR at the standard of care for those patients under the age of uh, 70 and young. I think this was under the age of 70. Um, so let's let's look at this. Uh, we'll go through this. This was again August one, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, two thousand nineteen, by uh, Shauna Felt and colleagues. The uh, I've mentioned the the exclusion of patients with seventeen p deletion. Um, so patients are randomized two to one. So twice as many folks were put on brutonib ruxolimab as FCR. So the abrutinib dosing was four hundred twenty milligrams a day continuously. Until progression of disease or unacceptable toxicity, fairly standard or fairly standard uh, regimen or duration of treatment for uh, for a small molecule inhibitor for an un- for an incurable disease. Now, so Brutinib 420 PO continuous until disease progression, basically. The rituximab did not start until cycle two. So after four weeks of ibrutinib, then they got rituxmab. And I don't think I've ever seen the dosing of rituxmab. They do here. They did 50 milligrams per meter squared on day one, then 325 milligrams per meter squared on day two of that second month of treatment. That's a total dose of 375 per meter squared in cycle one. But it was broken up with 50 milligrams per meter squared on day one and then 325 on day two. And then starting with the next cycle, so cycle three, which is the second cycle of rituximab. It's a little bit confusing. They went up to kind of the standard CLL dose, which is 500 milligrams per meter squared for the next five cycles. So again, the way this works, you start with ibrutinib continuously. After a month of ibrutinib, you do six cycles of rituximab. The first cycle was 375 per meter squared, but split over two days. Then the next five cycles were 500 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, so six cycles of rituximab after a month of ibrutinib. And then that was compared to fcr uh, fludarabine, 25 milligrams per meter squared on days 1, 2, and 3. Cyclophosphamide, 250 milligrams per meter squared on days 1, 2, and 3. So 75 milligrams per meter squared per cycle of fludarabine. 750 milligrams per meter squared of cyclophosphamide. And then rituximab, the same exact dosing schedule of 375 milligrams per meter squared split over that first cycle in the first two days, and then 500 milligrams per meter squared for the remaining five cycles. From a supportive care standpoint, all patients received uh, pneumocystis gervicii, or what we used to call PCP prophylaxis for a year, as well as herpes zoster prophylaxis for a year with something like valacyclovir. Uh, Allopurinol for the FCR folks is given for 14 days. For the ibrutinib rituximab folks, it was given uh, through the first 14 days as well, but also uh, with uh, cycle two or with the initiation of rituximab. So as with most CLL studies, uh, you know, the primary endpoint here is going to be progression-free survival, um, and we'll get to the efficacy out- outcomes in a second, but, you know, this is an N of about 600 patients. we got 354-ish in abrutinib rituximab, and just under 200 in the FCR group. Um, the average age was 56. Um uh, with uh, 41% of these patients being over the age of 60, uh, two-thirds of them were, were male, uh, most of them intermediate risk or high risk based on RICE staging, and most ECOG0 or 1. Uh, and 25% of the patients in the study had mutated IGHV, uh, which is associated with a slightly better prognosis, but is a subtype that historically has done very well on FCR. So... Looking at our progression-free survival analysis here. So the three-year landmark analysis, um, 89.4% of patients were alive without disease progression in the ibrutinibrituximab group, uh, which was significantly better than the FCR group, which is 72.9%. So that's an absolute uh, benefit of of more than 16%. Um, That is magnified even further if you look at unmutated IGHV. 90.7% ninety point seven percent versus 62.5 um, percent, you know, more like a 26 or 20 uh, 28, 27 percent absolute difference. So so brutinin Protoxmab was much better in those that had unmutated CLL. Uh, when you look at the subgroup demographics, um, there was not a, a difference in those that had the IGHV heavy mutation. Now it's only 25 percent of patient, 25 percent of patients in the study, and it certainly trended in favor of a brutinib, but it wasn't statistically significant in the subgroup analysis. That could have been uh, you know, just because of a lack of power, because it wasn't designed to look at that subgroup analysis. Uh, when we look at toxicity, well, before we get to toxicity, let's talk about overall survival. There was an overall survival difference in this study favoring a brutinibrituximab. This is pretty amazing to see in a CLL study at only three years of follow up because CLL is a chronic disease. Now, the overall survival rates are impressive for both arms, 98.8% with the Brutinib mab compared to 91.5% with FCR. Now, this is an incurable disease, so we would expect that kaplan Meyer curve to go to zero in both arms eventually. Um, so there is a statistically significant survival here. Uh, the authors do a good job kind of uh, couching that because we're, we're not even 10% of the way through this game. If this is a basketball game, this would be like saying team A is going to beat team B because they're ahead in the first 10% of the game. There's still a long way to go. And the authors do provide a, a nice uh, analysis of that in the discussion, which we'll get to after we talk about the toxicity. So FCR, as you would expect, had more lymphopenia and neutropenia. Um, 20% had a grade four lymphopenia, which is basically an AIDS-like state, which is why uh, you need that PJP prophylaxis. So despite there being more lymphopenia and neutropenia and febrile neutropenia in the FCR arm, there's actually more infection in the ibrutinib arm, 8% versus 5.7%, although grade 4 infection was more common with FCR. Uh, Hypertension was also more common in the ibrutinib arm compared to FCR, but this is fairly consistent with what we know. Now... This study was presented at ASH in December of 2018, and based off of that, the NCCN actually changed uh, their guidelines, as you might expect for a a positive study. Now, there is uh, some nuance to this. So prior to E1912, there was an Alliance North American Intergroup Study, or maybe it wasn't an intergroup study, but what we've referred to as the Alliance Study that looked at patients over the age of 65 with untreated CLL compared, comparing abrutinib monotherapy to Ibrutinib rituximab to bendamustine rituximab. Now, both abrutinib arms were far superior to the bendamustine rituximab arm. But in elderly patients over the age of 65, abrutinib was equally effective or as efficacious as Ibrutinib rituximab. That was in elderly patients. This study in younger patients did not have an abrutinib monotherapy arm. But based off of this study, primarily in patients um, under the age of 70, all, all of them under the age of 70, and in the Alliance study looking at patients over the age of 65, there's only five years of overlap in the patient population between these two studies. There are some patients uh, over 65 uh, in the E1912 study um, who would have been candidates for that Alliance study. Uh, they don't break down in the subgroup by, by 65 or over in the, this E1912 study, only 60 and over compared to 60 and under. So these are different patient populations. In the older patient population, we see a brutinib. There's no, essentially, there's no benefit to Retuxmap in these elderly patients. In these younger patients, we don't know based on E1912. However, the NCCN said, based on um, the panel reached consensus uh, or something along those lines, and they basically made a monotherapy a category 1 recommendation for uh, untreated CLL without 17p deletion which is not necessarily evidence based because in patients that are under the age of 65 uh, without comorbidities without deletion of 17p abrutinib has not been brutinum monotherapy has not been shown to be superior to fcr and map has with regards to pfs so they're extrapolating um, that Rituximab had no benefit in an elderly population and assuming that Rituximab has no benefit in a younger population. Um, But that's what consensus means. That is opinion. So the NCCN guidelines are a mixture of evidence and consensus, and I think this really illustrates how consensus can make its way uh, into these guidelines. Uh, They also, of course, would have removed FCR, which was the Category 1 recommendation for uh, young and fit patients without deletion 17P. Um, I do, you know, we, we like to criticize the authors of studies, so I do want to point some, some other things out that they do a nice job um, of attributing in this study. Um, and I'm, I'm quoting here from uh, the last page of the study. Since the current advantage with regard to overall survival was based on a limited number of events, again, more than 90% of patients in both arms are alive, um, the long-term follow-up for survival uh, among the patient in this trial, as well as the incidence of myelodysplastic syndrome or acute myeloleukemia, second cancers, and infectious complications will be important. We should see if long-term abrutinib uh, until disease progression causes uh, more problems than just six cycles of FCR, because the way this works is a abrutinib, six cycles of rituximab, and then abrutinib forever uh, until disease progression, not to mention the financial toxicity, but there is likely to be more toxicity, uh, you know, a year later in the folks on a brutinib than in FCR because they would only have had six cycles and then they're done with treatment until progression. Um, the study also points out that in this younger patient population, brutinib was better tolerated, at least less toxic, I'll say, than in the Alliance study, which was studying a brutinib monotherapy in an older population. So there was twice as much AFib, eight percent versus you know roughly fifteen percent or sixteen percent, seventeen percent in uh, in the Alliance study. There was uh, more hypertension in the Alliance study. So eighteen percent in E nineteen twelve compared to thirty four percent, and this is grade three hypertension. So eighteen point eight percent compared to thirty four percent in the Alliance study. So there certainly could be more toxicity in putting a patient on a brutinib uh, in the late '50s or '60s indefinitely until disease progression. as the patient ages, they may not tolerate a brutinib as much as they age. So I think that's an important uh, standpoint. They do mention also that uh, FCR that's been particularly effective for uh, IGHV-mutated CLL, uh, that abrutinib wasn't shown to be superior with that subgroup only 25% of the patient population is studied. So long follow-up in this subgroup of patients will provide additional clinical insults. Um, so there there certainly are, are um, you know, some things we should think about. Here's uh, um, a, a little bit of a dark sentence here. Unexplained or unwitnessed death, which could which can be due to cardiac arrhythmias, was observed in only one patient in E1912. That's the younger study. As compared with 3% or 11% uh, in uh, ibrutinib monotherapy in Alliance, uh, the Alliance study. So we see more unexplained death or unwitnessed death in older patients on ibrutinib, more hypertension, more atrial fibrillation. So as patients um, age and maybe acquire some of these comorbidities, um, you know ibrutinib might uh, have uh, some more complications. So... So that's E1912. So, uh, just to wrap up some of the big points here, we know that abrutinib is equal to abrutinib rituximab in young in older patients, but we don't know that in younger patients. That's an extrapolation of data in the elderly uh, that abrutinib monotherapy is as good as abrutinib rituximab. So we don't really know that. Uh, you know, you could make up, you could come up with some theories as to perhaps why rituximab. Um, why it might not work very well in elderly and why it may work better in younger patients. Maybe younger patients have a more competent immune system, therefore rituximab is able to work better. Um, certainly a possibility that, that I would like to see uh, refuted by a dedicated study of abrutinib monotherapy versus abrutinib plus rituximab in a younger patient population with CLL. Uh, but, you know, the NCCN used their consensus, in air quotes, to change um, abrutinib to a 1A recommendation. Those young patients under the age of 65 Without 17p deletion, they didn't. Or is not a category one; it's just a brutinib in these guidelines. Um, Immune toxicity increases with age, as we compare the E1912 toxicity data to the Alliance data. Um, and the overall survival advantage is impressive with Bruton' ber compared to FCR. But 90% of patients still alive in both groups. There's still a long way to go. Still, unfortunately, a lot of patients um, that will likely pass away. Um, and the NCC and guidelines, uh, continue to say this, uh, with regards to FCR is the panel emphasizes that FCR remains an appropriate first line option for patients less than 65 years without significant comorbidities, especially in those with mutated IGHV. So there still may be a role here, uh, for using FCR in those patients that have mutated IGHV. um, one thing I forgot to mention, gosh, I'm so bad at podcasting. I forgot to mention this, and this was brought up by my uh, students, actually, in the Journal Club, is there was a very, not a very, but a much higher rate of MRD negativity, so minimum residual disease negativity, meaning when you look for that, say, that IGHV mutation, you don't find it after treatment. There's much higher complete response rates and MRD negativity with FCR compared to a Ibrutinib rituximab. And uh, the question was, well, why not go for a complete response? That means the disease is gone. Isn't that better? Um, and that's really like looking at a, a surrogate endpoint uh, compared to overall survival. And progression-free survival is also a bit of a surrogate endpoint, uh, most folks would argue. Um, but this is not a curable disease. If this was acute myeloid leukemia or ALL, a disease that we're trying for cure, MRD negativity becomes more important than in a chronic disease that we don't care about, a disease where we'd uh, we expect to have progression, um, you know, years later. So that's what I have to, to say about a, a Brutinib rituximab compared to FCR uh, in younger patients with CLL in the first-line setting. Thank you so much for downloading listening to the podcast. I'd appreciate uh, a rating of five stars, a good review in iTunes. You can uh, find the podcast there on Stitcher, on uh, uh, Google Music, um, on SoundCloud. You can follow me on Twitter at Deepnib and the podcast at OncoFarmPod, both on Twitter and Insta. Thanks again for listening, and until I talk to you again, remember doses matter.